Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Cole Zucker, who is the co-founder and former co-CEO of Green Creative, as well as the co-founder of Hey Hero. He took Green Creative from zero to $60 million in revenue in six years, along with his business partner and the rest of the team over there, and then sold the company and now has started Hey Hero which is personalized advice from creators where you get one-on-one advice from your favorite creators in fitness, fashion, food, and more. In this episode, we go through how Cole started Green Creative, growing it from doing sales door-to-door in San Francisco to the point where it went from hundreds of thousands in sales to the 60 million plus, how he ended up deciding with his co-founder to sell the business and then the transition to his next company where he said he would not, didn't plan on actually starting another company and did it anyways. We go through all of that in this episode of the show. As always, the show notes are at discogrind.com slash podcast. You can support the show by leaving a rating and a review over in Apple Podcasts. I would very much so appreciate that. And finally, the weekly grind, my weekly newsletter comes out every Friday. Tips, tools, and strategies for growing a business can be found at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Without further ado, here is Cole Zucker. Cole, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for the uh, the invite. Yes. And obviously, I want to talk a lot about Green Creative as well as the new company, Hey Hero. Uh, where I want to get started with first, though, is with Green Creative, th- this company, where did this get started in the first place, Cole? So Green Creative was formed with my business partner in 2010 while I was living in Shanghai. And in that time, so while you're living in Shanghai, I know there's a lot of like backstory to that. How did you find your business partner to begin with? Well, it's kind of a funny story, but we sat next to each other randomly at a uh, dinner at a Mexican restaurant of all places in (laughs) Shanghai and we hit it off. That's amazing. And with that, so you say you hit it off. Like, how does it go from randomly meet here to then starting this company that ends up consuming many years of your life? Uh, where did it go? How did you know early on, like, oh, this is a person I want to work with? Well, I knew that night that he would be potentially an interesting business partner. Um, I'd moved to Shanghai when I was in, uh, after college, so in uh, 2007. And I went there so that I could get the experience of living in Asia and living in in China and seeing what was going on there just because you read in the newspaper, especially then how fast China's economy is growing. And I thought it'd be interesting to, to get that firsthand experience. But my intent wasn't to move to China and live there forever. It was to uh, enjoy that time period in my life, but at some point to find something in China that was ultimately going to be interesting enough to sell or do in the U.S., so that I could move back to the U.S. and do something entrepreneurial. So I kind of had my antennas out from the day that I arrived looking for my opportunity to, to seize upon. And when I met Guillaume, who's he's originally from France, we um, hit it off that, that one night at the restaurant. We didn't really know much about each other, of course, but <laughs> we, did, we did bond over the fact that we both were driving in, in China. We both um, had our driver's license and cars and didn't have drivers. So that was one thing. But later that night, we went to a club, as most people do in Shanghai. And we um, were just, you know, hanging out, having fun and drinking. And someone pushed me from behind. Um, and I, you know, kind of like walloped over pretty hard. And Guillaume, without hesitation, because I was talking to him at the time that I was thrown over, yeah. um, grabbed the guy and literally pushed him down the steps. Um, <laughs> It was it was one of the most natural things I've ever witnessed, and I kind of followed it away. Oh, this is a good guy; he's got my back. And you know, flash forward three years later, we reconnected and had a dinner, and we talked about what we wanted to do, and it just seemed to vibe very well as far as our goals and plans. And so we decided to continue iterating, and one thing went led to another, and nights and weekends ultimately became full time, and then. I moved back to the U.S. and the business was formed. Yeah, and there's a lot to dig into there. But where I want to go to first, because my mind goes to this right away, and people might have think you just kind of glossed over this. Not everyone would see, oh, yeah, China's economy is growing. I'm going to move from the U.S. to China. What was it about you that made you 
do that in your background that made you take that leap and go to China in the first place? Um, a lot of the credit goes to my grandfather. He was a towel salesman of all people, of all things. And as I was growing up, he was in the process of outsourcing most of his manufacturing to China for his towels. Yeah. And just seeing what was happening there and knowing that China was going to be the, be the future, he really put it in my mind um, over and over again, every time I saw him that I need to be focused on China, that this country is just waking up. And then in 2001, when China entered into the WTO, he said, that's it. Uh, that's the you know formalization of China as a major power in, in, in the global world order. So it's time that you start paying attention to what they're doing. And I really took that to heart. And so when I went to college, I saw that Mandarin was offered and I decided if I'm going to be working for a Chinese person, might as well be able to speak their language. And, <laughs> yeah. And then I spent the summer abroad in Beijing, which was a crazy time just because at the time, I mean, China is still growing very fast, but in the early 2000s, the national bird was called the crane just because there were so many cranes in China. Um, Beijing was no exception. And so <laughs> after I experienced uh, what it was like to live in, in, in China while in college, uh, I decided that after graduation, I need to go back and, and get more. Yeah. And one more thing with that too, then have you always kind of been entrepreneurial or like looking for business ideas or did that just happen through your grandfather? Like how, how did that kind of uh, evolve over time? Great question. So my mom's a teacher, my dad's a lawyer, and there really aren't too many people in my family who have entrepreneurial backgrounds or mindsets even. Uh, my mom had wanted me to become a lawyer as well. And I pushed back on that pretty, pretty steadily <laughs> throughout my life. Um, even while Green Grader was successful, I was getting emails from her saying, you should consider getting an MBA or law degree, um, which I guess maybe was a good idea if you're a Jewish neurotic mother in, in New Jersey, but I prefer challenge. I prefer to take risk. So the entrepreneurial mindset, the spirit, I don't know exactly where that came from, but I would say that I always had this confidence in myself uh, from a very early age that if I put my mind to something, I could probably achieve it or at least get close to achieving it. And when thinking about what I wanted to do, there were a couple of people that I met across my college experience that were very inspiring and a lot of them were entrepreneurial. And so I naturally gravitated to that, uh, thinking that that this would be a, an arena where I think I can be successful and, and, and hopefully accomplish something. Yeah. And then fast forwarding to meeting your business partner, you said it wasn't until a few years later that you ended up connecting again. Did you stay in touch that whole time or were you talking about ideas throughout that time? Like, How did that go those few years before you started? Yeah, Shanghai is a funny place because because it's a very transient society, especially if you're an expat. You have people coming in and coming out all the time. And so when it comes to you know making friends, your 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 group of friends is, is constantly shifting. And Guillaume and I, we at some point, maybe within a year of hanging out, kind of naturally drifted away. And it wasn't until maybe two years after that that we reconnected. And it was actually I was home one night and I sat in the, remo the remote, the TV accidentally turned on and there was Guillaume on a nightly news broadcast what? being interviewed <laughs> about a restaurant while he was sitting in the booth at the restaurant. And I said, oh my God, Guillaume, I haven't seen or heard of from him in a while. So I texted him immediately that didn't know he was a TV star. And uh, three days later, I think we were having dinner and I told him at that time that I had been in China for you know three and a half years. I was ready for my next move. I wanted to move back to the U.S. I was looking for an opportunity, and things really clicked because he said pretty much the same thing. Um, we echoed each other's feelings, and then we kind of put together on a napkin a business plan for LED lighting because he was working for a lighting factory, and I was also working for a lighting factory of of all the industries and businesses to be doing in China. We're doing the same thing. So it seemed like the stars aligned and without really thinking about whether he would be a good business partner or, or not, which I think is a major consideration when it comes to you know getting into a business together. I mean, you really want to be able to consider what your strengths are and that person's strengths and goals and even lifestyle. If somebody, as I'm sure you're aware, has kids and uh, a lot of other commitments 
it's probably going to be difficult for them to be head down uh, hard at it 24 hours a day for three or five years, however long it takes to build the business, especially in the early days when you don't have that team around you. So, you know, we were very fortunate because a lot of things kind of aligned like a puzzle piece uh, coming together. Yeah. And with that early on, then, did you have a clear idea of what kind of the roles and responsibilities were between the two two of you and like who was going to actually do what? I know you're a co-CEO. How did you decide on that? It was pretty simple. Guillaume's strength was very much in product development, marketing, and the manufacturing. He had been working with a number of uh, companies that were in the LED lighting industry uh, who were manufacturers in China. And so he really was very deep, uh, deeply involved with um, the really the forefront of LED technology and the innovation that was happening. Myself, I was more on the, the, the sales side. Uh, I was a project manager while in China, working on another, a number of very large deals, but I always felt in my blood that I would be more successful in more of a pure sales type role. And so we kind of uh, fragmented the, the roles where, or I should say separated the roles where he did everything as it related to product development, marketing, supply chain, and manufacturing. And then anything related to sales and distribution is what my focus was. And even geographically, uh, we spent about six months developing the idea, uh, building the business, um, finding the suppliers we were ultimately going to work with. And then once we were ready to launch, he stayed in China and I moved to the U.S. And for the next seven years, we essentially were flying back and forth, seeing each other every couple of weeks um, working together. So we, we were co-CEOs, but we were certainly not in the same time zone by any means, but we were still able to make it work. Yeah, made it work. And you grew a lot within that. And I'm going to get to that growth in, in a little bit here. But one thing I'm curious about too, is people always are wondering in the, in the beginning, how did you decide to to fund this? And that you were, I know, obviously, no, you know, it's self-funded to begin with. Like, how did you decide you both are like, yeah, let's, let's put our savings in this and do it. Take me through that thinking and that, kind of that thought process there. Yeah, for sure. Um, so when we first started the company, we were totally clueless. I mean, we were coming <laughs> off of we were coming off of you know very few just a short period of time that we had been actually working, uh, just a couple of years. So our experience was limited and was very much a I would say an employee type mindset. So once we decided we were going to jump into the deep end and start our company, we had no clue that the next step would be to consider how you're going to. Um, fund the, the business. And so it took, it took a few weeks, I would say, before we kind of came to the conclusion that we probably need some money um, <laughs> if we wanted to have a business. And uh, that was kind of a funny conversation. And once we realized that, we put a pitch deck together. We had a really funny logo at the time. The whole thing was really amateur now that I think about it. But we <laughs> really just went into our network and started calling or emailing, I should say, anyone that we thought could potentially help us and fund this. And um, it was really a lot of rejection because most of the people that we spoke to, first of all, it was like 2009, 2010. So it was still a bit close to the uh, financial crisis. So a lot of people were unwilling to take risk and bet on first-time founders who were young and also that they didn't really know too well. But the other thing was that a lot of people felt like Philips and GE, while they were still early in terms of development of LED products, they were still mostly like the legacy products that we know, such as fluorescent and halogen and incandescent, that they would most likely be able to uh, catch up to the development curve and then eat our lunch. And that was what we heard over and over again. And so ultimately, we both had a little bit of savings from you know the couple of years that we were working. And we said, why don't we just take the, that, that amount and then put it into a bank account and uh, we'll just start start the business from there. And hopefully the bank account won't be depleted completely. <laughs> um, and uh, if so, we'd have to, you know, lick our wounds and 
figure out what was next, maybe get another job. Yeah. And that was enough to, to get you started, to get the products developed then. Take me through getting your first customers and how that process went, because that's always such a huge, a huge issue, a huge struggle. Like who those customers are going to be? Like how? Take me through like like how what you were thinking about that about acquiring your first customers and how you actually ended up doing it. Yeah, I mean, looking at today when it comes to just customers in general, I mean, a lot of people operate on the in the online world, but uh, the lighting industry in 2010 was still mostly analog. Most customers were, um, and by customer, I mean distributor, they were still faxing orders um, to the manufacturers. And it just, it was an industry that just took a long time to develop. I mean, we're talking about, it was an interesting time too, just because at when when LED came onto the scene, when it was finally viable as a technology and the price point made sense, you had a industry that, that was used to essentially fluorescent lights and halogen lights, which could sit on a shelf for years and years and years. And there was no need to ever really change the product and the SKUs were always the same. So when LED really became this viable technology, every single distributor, every single customer had to adapt because all of a sudden LED prices were changing all the time. They were coming down. The efficacy of the product was improving. Every 10 to 12 months, you'd have a new generation. So it went from an analog to a digital to a very technologically advanced product line. So for us, it was a very disruptable market that we'd walked into. And uh, the beginning days, just to answer your question of finding customers, a lot of it was just Googling who buys light bulbs, um, <laughs> looking at the uh, overall industry as a whole and trying to get in touch with people that uh, you know you see um, at uh, trade shows, if you're able to get like the trade show list of who goes and just trying to be as scrappy as possible. And then, of course, picking up the phone and dialing for dollars. And so that was the beginning was just cold calling and emailing and trying to get anyone to listen on the phone. And, uh, that was, that was the first couple of, uh, months of the company. Yeah. And with that though, thinking about your, you the startup, two young guys running this company, what is the pitch to be able to have someone take a, take a chance on you guys? Yeah. I mean, the pitch was constantly changing, but a lot of it was led lighting. If you haven't found your technology partner, we're a great, um, company because, our core competency is manufacturing. Uh, we've spent the good part of our careers, of course, we didn't say how long, but <laughs> in China uh, on the manufacturing side. And while the big players plan to offer great LED products in the future, they're not there today. So having a smaller, more nimble uh, manufacturer, uh, at least in that time period, was going to be the most viable option. So trying to differentiate ourselves as being a speedboat rather than this giant uh, aircraft carrier um, was the, the pitch that we would give. And it didn't work. I mean, I wouldn't say, <laughs> I wouldn't say it didn't work, but most people say, I don't know you. And yeah. your product burns up in um, the ceiling and blo uh, my building burns down. Um that's bad. And uh, I don't think I'll be fired if it was a Phillips light, but if it's a green creative light, I'm probably gonna lose my job and you probably don't have yeah. to cover that. So there was a lot of pushback, which ultimately made me decide that the only solution was to um, walk the streets of, of San Francisco, which is where we were living or where I was living and just walk into building, uh, buildings and offices and try to sell door to door as best that I could. Okay, getting to that point of selling door to door. So you know this this strategy of cold calling, emailing, it's not working. They're not getting it. You decide to go door to door to sell product. You did that for a long time, I know. How I mean, is that something that just like, oh, this has to be done? This is the only kind of logical next step? Like what were you thinking about about it at the time? Well, my back was against the wall. The the alternative option was to go back to China and find a job again. And that didn't seem like a reality I was willing to, to face. And I think that a lot of people, they are at their best when they are their most desperate versions of themselves. And there was just total desperation there. 
because I felt like this has to succeed. There's no, there's no other alternative. And so the only thing I could think of is how do you get as close to the end user, the end customer as possible? And that was to just kind of knock on doors. So our, just to like step back for a second, ultimately our customer is the end user, the McDonald's, the Jose Banks, the J Jills, the Adidas's of the world in the retail arena. However, we don't sell directly to them. We sell through middlemen, distributors, and these distributors will uh, sign large scale contracts with these these big retailers um, and commercial businesses across the country. And for example, when a light goes out in a McDonald's, it's not the job of the guy flipping hamburgers at the McDonald's to um, replace the light and go to the Home Depot around the corner. It's um, There's a number, he has an iPad, they replace it. Uh, the company has a local warehouse and they come and they replace the light um, as quickly as they possibly can. And those are our customers. Those are the people, the distributors um, that we were talking to. And those middlemen didn't really feel any interest or had no motivation to sell our product. And so the only thing I could think of was to, to jump them and get in front of end users, but I didn't know any end users. So um, the only way to do it was by just hustling and walking into parking garages when the, the, the garage door would open in a commercial business in downtown San Francisco and try to find the engineering office and then just walking in and saying, hi, do you have a minute? I have a, a pitch I'd love to tell you about. Um, or going into a hotel and trying to find the general manager or going into a jewelry store or a furniture shop and just trying to get the decision maker in in, 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 in front of me so that I could uh, tell him why he needs or she needs to uh, buy our products and use LEDs. Yeah, and that was such a great workaround, it seems like, to actually get to the customer you're trying to talk to. And to your point of distributors not wanting to carry your product, can you take us through that? Like, what at that time was your product in terms of how differentiated was it? Or like, what what was it at, at that time, like your first kind of version when you're, when you're selling this to door to door in San Francisco? Yeah, our product when we first came into the market was really bad. Um, it was, <laughs> it was off the shelf. Um, we had asked the factory to essentially take a, take a flyer on us and take a risk and, uh, work with us. And, um, with a very, very small limited batch of product, they were willing to work with us. And so, um, I think the total amount was something like 1500 units. That was our first, um, initial order. And, uh, once, once they, you know, were willing to give us a little bit of credit, a couple of terms here. And they knew that, you know, we didn't really know what we're doing, that we we're first time. <laughs> and so they took a, they really took a risk on us because it could have blown up in their face. However, when it came to um, our product line, the only products they were willing to sell to us, to let us buy essentially, were these really terrible lights that were black faced, um, had lots of different optics on them. Uh, excuse me, LED chips on the face. So it really was much uglier than anything that you could find on the market. And the light output was was way worse than uh, the competitors. So if people were actually benchmarking our products, then they would have seen that we were subpar performance and another reason <laughs> not to buy. But by going to the end users, especially at that time, a lot of people knew that LEDs existed. They knew that it was those those, that, those lights that, are on their remote control, but a lot of the education was on, you know, why they should consider LED in their shops or in their hotel, because it could save money, last longer. And um, rather than comparing the specs of us versus the competition, it really was, oh, that's great. You seem like a knowledgeable salesperson and I'd love to do business with you. Um, at least, you know, one out of 20 times. <laughs> yeah, one, one out of 20. So you keep on knock, knocking on more and more doors. And how long did you end up like doing that for? Like in, in that first year, I, I don't know how long it ended up being, but especially like that first year, I mean, was it, how did you decide then to move on from knocking on doors and the, the company grew? I'm curious, yeah. like that kind of side of things. Well, the first year, as I mentioned, was a lot of door knocking and just hustling. Um, however, there were a couple of larger jobs that we were able to win because 
um, they the stores just so happened to have a lot of lights. Um, and there were a couple of furniture stores specifically that there's lights everywhere. And then when they gave us an order and we were selling directly to them, um, there were distributors that had been cut out of the deal who had been servicing those accounts for a long time. And so once we started to kind of make traction in this in the city of San Francisco, the local distributors started seeing that we were cutting them out of the jobs and they were losing business. And so at that point, they said, hey, 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 you know, stop what you're doing. Um, if you're going to you know, go around me, at least let me sell your product um, because uh, I just would rather get some of the sale than nothing. And so that was maybe a year into the business. And at that point, I guess we were a little bit of a threat uh, just because we were going direct. Um, however, there were a couple of distributors that started to say, all right, well, we'll give you a chance and started putting our product onto um, their their warehouse shelves to you know to stock it. And so once that started to happen, um, we then began to focus more on becoming a scalable enterprise, not just a a one-man band with a suitcase full of light bulbs selling door to door. And with that too, then how did that change in terms of logistics of like the factory side of it and actually producing products and even like evolving your products as you then had some more distribution? Yeah. So the first warehouse in the US in North America for Green Creative was the public storage space on Toland in San Francisco. And you know, as we were getting some orders here and there, I would go back to the the public storage site. Um, grab the uh, product off the pallet and then drive it over to a local FedEx. Um, so the first days, obviously, you know, were just about getting by. Um, yeah. But the uh, entire time that I was really walking the streets of San Francisco, my business partner was um, in Shanghai working closely with the factory, which you know we'd have be- be- we began to really develop a strong relationship with them. And Guillaume and I. We still speak a lot to this day, but we would speak every morning and every evening extensively. Um, And so if you imagine you've got, you know, sales, um, the left hand talking directly to uh, product development, the right hand, and it's very rare that you have these two functions so close. And so really, Guillaume was hearing and and seeing as closely as he could, even though he was in Shanghai, what was happening on the, the front lines of the U.S. as it relates to LED lights. And at the same point, he was also seeing all the manufacturing that was happening by the competition in China. And so while that was happening, we were developing um, our next generation product, which um, was a significantly better, much superior product than our first generation. But, you know, a lot of it is just getting something out so you can test the market and just make sure that like, this is something that makes sense. Um, But once we came out with our generation two product, that was when people started to take us a little bit more seriously because it looked like we could potentially break out as a player, um, at least locally. I mean, we were still nowhere to be seen um, um, in terms of just like the overall uh, North American market as a whole, but we were starting to make some noise in, in, in San Francisco. Yeah. And with that too, and to that point you mentioned, going from door to door, maybe hundreds of thousands in sales to millions of sales was there was there an inflection point was there something that happened that really caused you to kind of get over the edge in terms of making this into a really successful company yeah so a lot of it was just observing what was happening and when finding things that work trying to recreate them and um making lots and lots and lots of mistakes and then at some point learning from those mistakes and um focusing on what made those decisions, the right decisions. I know that all sounds very basic, but (laughs) when we started to figure out the market as a whole in terms of uh, using uh, sales rep agencies, selling directly through distribution, going to the end user, started focusing on specific verticals, um, started to realize what our product mix should look like. And then um, in terms of the uh, inside salespeople to outside salespeople mix and the best way that Outside salespeople should be uh, spending their time allocating resources and the like. That was when we just kind of figured that the next step would be bring it to scale and that formula that we built, just recreate it. And at that point, it's not so much rocket science. It's really just putting your head down and just doing it over and over and over again until 
um, you need to, you know, change the strategy. And so at some point we kind of figured out, you know, what is the best structure, at least on the sales side. Um, and then also on the development side in China. And, um, as soon as we started to see progress being made with distributor accounts in San Francisco, we went further down into LA and then we went further to, you know, we just kept expanding and expanding and building better relationships and better product. And so it wasn't so much an inflection. It was more of a, uh, it was, it was, it was fast growth, but we were, you know, slowly building the brand, the awareness and, um, the product line. Yeah. And, and growing the team, that side of things you mentioned, how did that go for you? You went going from this, this small team of, of just in your, you and your business partner to then having all these different reps and everything. Was that easy for you? Was it like a, a struggle? Like how did that go with the team side of things? Oh, hiring is always a struggle, especially in the beginning. I mean, even, even later is, is difficult, especially, you know, if you're considering specific profiles, the first hire that we made, um, this woman who was a recent graduate of college and she was more of like a, uh, executive assistant. I mean, she was uh, brand new to, to, you know, just the working world. Um, when we hired her, that was like one of the scariest moments of the company history because it was recognition that we needed to support another person or just how we would have, you know, higher uh, cash flow needs. And so that was a very scary moment. But once we hired her and she started to effectively uh, create value for the company, we realized that we really needed to start growing the team. And um, it was always a balance. It was always a delicate balance because um, as it relates to growth, rapid growth, and um, you know, we went from a couple hundred thousand in sales year one, which is amazing, to um, nearly eight figures the second year um, to uh, something even more significant in year three. A lot of it is figuring out, you know, what does that, that growth look like so you can, uh, manage your cash flow and uh, invest in the future, but not so much that you have significant capital needs because when you're cash broke, cash poor like we were, um, yeah. we could only afford so much. So we really had to be smart in terms of how we allocated our capital and invest as far as we could um, into the future, knowing that you know at some point we'd probably be at a, at a, at a place where um, the team was going to be overworked, but there was nothing we could do about it because um, we just couldn't afford to to hire more people. Yeah, and one thing I'm thinking about through this all, as you're mentioning this growth and you know getting to eight figures plus, I know in the beginning people kind of turned you down and said this. There's too many other companies that are doing in this space. They're going to evolve. They're going to crush you. Why were you able to stand out against these big competitors? Well, the initial strategy, or I should say, the justification for why we should exist, turned out to be. 100% accurate. So we built a speedboat while the major players were very much, you know, very slow oil tankers. Um, we were able to innovate much faster than everybody else because, you know, when I said the right hand and the left hand were talking every single day, um, we were able to see what was happening on the front lines and adapt. And when it came to new products, we were the first people to be able to launch them. And so while we weren't so much building new product from scratch from a design perspective, we really felt like we were fast integrators. And so what that meant is as soon as a new chipset would come out, a new generation that was more efficacious um, or a better optic or uh, a heat sink that could be used that was aluminum and a mix of aluminum and um, thermal plastic. Once we started seeing these small, improvements in the product line, which could help from a cost and maybe a performance perspective, we were always among the first to be able to integrate it into our product mix. Whereas a lot of the major players, um, they had global product lines with managers of product lines who were based all around the world. Maybe somebody was in Brazil and uh, someone in the Czech Republic would have to sign off on that person's um, designs. Um, and so because they were so slow and bureaucratic, um, we were able to uh, grow fast because we were known as those innovative players who have really solid product. Yeah. And that's such a, an important point to make because there's, you know, how do you find room in the markets for that exact reason of being able to move faster and having these products that evolve over, over time? And as you grow this company, then as you, you grow, you know, 
mentioned the growth numbers a little bit, but eventually you get to the point where if you're doing eight plus figures, you eventually get to a point where you, you sell. And I'd be curious to know how you got to that point or even your thinking around that. When we wanted to sell the business? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we really grew very fast in a short period of time. I mean, I, I can say in, in about six years, we got to 60 million in sales, um, starting at a base of zero with, you know, very little investment, um, pretty much nothing fully bootstrapped. So, um, in doing so, um, especially as a first time, uh, entrepreneur, there were a lot of things that we didn't know what we were doing. And one of the areas we didn't invest in properly, especially in the beginning, uh, was, uh, systems accounting systems and so it was just a constant struggle in terms of our ability to report and get accurate data and um, as we grew the concerns that we had were there was a bit of financial risk for the company just because we were just a bit messy um yeah and so we felt like it would have made sense for somebody who can come in clean up and uh fix a lot of the you know mistakes that were made from an accounting perspective um, and really just professionalize the business. And so, um, you know, there's a time where a company goes from being, you know, a startup to one that, uh, requires the skill set of, I would say more of a professional, um, professional CEO in a lot of cases. And I think we had reached that point and we'd also created a lot of value for the business, um, in the business and wanted to realize some of that. So we thought it made sense to, um, go to market and uh, we hired some bankers and then we eventually sold to uh, a private equity fund. I'm, I'd be curious about those conversations with your co-founder. Was that you know pretty clear consensus with the two of you or did that take a long time to really decide on what your, your move was going to be? I'm really curious about that. Um, it did take a little while to decide. I mean, the process was grueling. Um, the uh, amount of work to get the deal over the finish line was not insignificant <laughs> we went back and forth a lot with the uh, ultimate buyers um to uh come to terms and to make the deal happen so there were a lot of times during the deal that we were pencils down and we decided that we weren't going to sell and uh there was definitely a wishy-washiness that occurred but a lot of it was due to just the amount of sheer effort and the back and forth um not so much that we didn't feel like we should uh, sell the business. And fortunately for us, we stuck to our guns and we sold, but it was uh, it was quite a process to, to get there. But when we decided that we were going to sell, we were very full in terms of our convictions that this was the move to make. Yeah, and I, I'm sure it was a difficult decision you know, to get to that point, finally, uh, of selling then. Looking back on that experience, I mean, I'm sure there was potentially a lot of things you mentioned, there was a lot of mistakes Are there any particular, you know, things you would have done differently with the company. I mean, it's massively successful. You mentioned getting to 60 million, uh, in, in revenue from, you know, starting from scratch. Is there anything you would have done differently though, looking back? Yeah. Well, a couple of things. One is that we would have probably raised more money or capitalized the company better in the early days. I mean, it's hard to say whether that would have made us successful or not, just because I mean, the past of the past, you can't change it, but when it comes yeah. to starting a new company, if you don't have enough capital, especially for a fast growing business that's extremely um, requires a lot of high, a significant amount of working capital to fund it, then you know making sure you you have access to to you know what would be uh, necessary to scale that that's important because if you're just hand to mouth, um, you're not making the best decisions for the company. You're just trying to. Um, keep the company from really exploding um, for for negative and, and running out of money. It's not a good place to be. So I say that would be one thing that we probably would have done differently. Um, knowing what we know now, um, having someone on the HR front um, who can help to manage some of the issues that you have from a personnel perspective and also the recruiting and just a person that can be a, uh, a strategic visionary as far as someone that you can talk to about specific hires, what they should look like, and then ultimately whether that person should be hired um, can save a lot of time um, and help in terms of alleviating potential mistakes 
So, you know, I wouldn't call it a chief people officer role, but somebody high up in the HR function that's a business partner can help um, from the strategic side. The other area would be financial. I mean, investing in the background of the business, making sure you have the right systems, um, that you are able to close your books quickly and uh, use your data to your advantage rather than feel like you're lost in data that's most likely inaccurate. Um, that's something that we would have done differently too. Yeah, and then transitioning then from from Green Creative to Hey Hero, someone sells a business, sometimes they stay in the business, sometimes they are clean break and they're done right away. But I'd be curious about that transition into going from one company to deciding to take the leap again to start another company. How, how did that go for you, Cole? Funny you say that. I mean, I, and I think I just said this a little while ago, um, when, when we sold the business, one of the things that, um, you know, I told myself was that I wouldn't start another business again. Um, and if I did, then it would be a fully capitalized business that uh, would have a team around me from day one um, so that I wouldn't have to be so day to day. However, yeah. um, a lot of things change. And um, while it took a couple of years for me to feel like uh, I needed a break and need to get away from that entrepreneurial life, um, there's something about the challenge of starting from really the, the first floor and being as scrappy as possible and bootstrapped as possible that you know kind of makes you feel alive, at least for me. And so um, at some point in the earlier part of this year, I was ready, ready to start something. And so uh, my wife and I, we decided that it would make sense to uh, start a business together. And so that's what we did. And we've been very scrappy. We've been really uh, head down in terms of just building this thing. And uh, it's been a blast. And you know, it kind of reminds me of the early days of Green Creative um, obviously it's a little bit of a different situation from a, you know, a safety net perspective now, but, um, yeah. it's really fun to, you know, put this big challenge up on the, the board and then say, I'm going to accomplish this. And then just trying to, uh, to do it and hit the target, uh, you know, bit by bit. Yeah. And doing this again, you know, coming into another, another company, how did you decide on this particular company then with Hey Hero? Um, so it's funny. I mean, with LED lighting, I was very much involved in that business because that's what I was doing uh, in China. But when I was in the process of looking for uh, my opportunity that I can bring back to the US, I hadn't really considered uh, LED lighting. I was looking at a lot of other things. I was looking at a magazine um, and then some like wall material that was like sustainable. And so of all the things that like I ultimately uh, got involved in, I really didn't think it was going to be the one that I was doing day to day with my normal job in China. However, um, I was opportunistic at the time and felt like the market share for LED at, in 2010 was maybe like 0.5% and it was going to grow significantly. And so I felt like there was opportunity to create this brand and build something in the US. And, you know, ultimately we were right. We were very fortunate. But um, when Katie and I decided that we were going to start a company together. We looked at the market, we looked at areas of opportunity, and we settled, settled in on the influencer world because it's a huge and growing market. And influencer marketing is a place where brands are throwing a lot of money at. And I think it's very durable as far as it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Influencers are just going to have more and more clout. Uh, than ever. And so we felt like this was a good place to play and we could learn a lot. Yeah. And for people who don't really know what this is or haven't heard of Hey Hero, can you give us just a little bit overview of kind of what it is and how it works? Sure. So we've built something like a Cameo for influencers. Cameo in a lot of ways is a shout out platform for like D-list celebrities, reality TV stars, athletes. And it's great. It serves a purpose. There's novelty. It's fun. But we felt like it was not serving content creators in such a way that they'd want to align their brands directly with uh, the platform. And so we said, let's start something that rather is uh, video shout outs by, by, by D-list celebrities, let's do content creators doing uh, video messages that are kind of like mini consultations or personalized advice. So a content creator, somebody with, uh, with a significant social media presence, um, some form of expertise, high engagement, that has a lot of inbound uh, requests every single day from their fans and their followers that appreciate them and kind of want to pick their brains. 
um, those people, these content creators, they're not able to get to all of the requests. And so uh, they go on our site, they create a profile, they have a uh, price that they set, and then they're given a personalized link. And so they can link out to anyone that asks a question uh, with this personalized link and say, uh, if you want a meaningful response, um, this is where you can hit me up and I'll give you a uh, video message within seven days. And so that's what we've built. And we went live about a month ago. That's so exciting. And uh, this may be in a, a round two uh, scenario where we talk more in depth as you as you grow, but just with like the initial, I know you're, you're kind of just getting out there with this, the initial customers, the initial kind of customer discovery process, what has that been like for you so far? Well, the feedback's been fantastic. We do have a, a feedback system on our site where um, the creators are being rated and uh, the fans are being rated as well. We're keeping that private now, but we're monitoring it. And we're seeing lots of people appreciate it on, on both sides of the, of the marketplace, of the platform. So we're very excited about the, uh, the future of this business because we really think we're onto something. Yeah. And I think it'll continue to grow. I've taken a look and uh, it's very interesting. I think that whole kind of industry, like you said, with the influencers, it, because it is kind of, brands are throwing a lot of money into this, but it's also so fragmented. There's just opportunity within it. And so it's just interesting to see where that will will go. And one thing I always said I want, want to ask about, just kind of uh, switching gears here a little bit, looking back on you know, careers, any particular books that have been helpful or books you've just enjoyed. I'm a big reader. So I'm always curious about any book suggestions if you if you have any, Cole. Man, there's so many. <laughs> so many. Yeah. So so I love reading. I think it's a critical skill for life and it's very important to just constantly increase your knowledge base. A book that I read that had a pretty significant impact was is a book called The Outsiders. It's eight unconventional CEOs and the radically rational blueprint for success by William Thorndike, and it's a fantastic book. And it's very interesting because the book itself is about these very successful CEOs and some CEOs you have never heard of, and a lot of the things that they've done, and the book is a bit dated, I mean, it's from, from the 1950s and 60s and 70s, but a lot of the things that these CEOs were doing back then um, are uh, things that we are considering kind of new and novel today. So they were really, really ahead of the game. I mean, most of these these very successful businesses were working as distributed uh, businesses, distributed offices um, in the '70s. So it just shows, Jeez. yeah, that they were really ahead of the game. And it's a very interesting um, way to to look at success. And so, highly recommend that book. Yeah, there's so many. I mean, there are so many books to your point out there, and it's just such a life hack to be able to read that. And to your point, with you know from. 50s and 60s and 70s, like from years and years ago. And there's so many of those gems out there that people don't know about that can be so helpful if you take the time to to read some of them. You know, obviously you're never going to read all of them, but finding ones that will, will be helpful for your situation and can pr provide some perspective is just really valuable, especially with, you know, it may only take a number of hours to get those, those insights and it's just such a powerful thing. And um, one thing too, I always want to know is, how do you kind of recharge or step away from work even now, but even looking back when you were running green creative as well? Yeah, you can relate to it. Uh, running. Um, that's been something that, that has been with me since I was a child and as a lifelong runner, it's meditation. It's an outlet. It's how I decompress. So it's an important part of uh, my day and my life. And I don't know what I would do if I wasn't able to run. Yeah, I definitely will. <laughs> we'll say the same. Uh, just feeling like the ability to get away, and even if you, yeah, even if it's just a short, a short, you know, whatever, a few miles, whatever, maybe it's just something. It's like it's so helpful, especially when you're working kind of nonstop or just have all these things in your in your head as you're building a company. Finding something to de-stress, something something that recharges you. Running is a great example, and uh, yeah, I definitely agree with that one. And and Cole, just to kind of wrap things up here, is there any other advice or things you'd say to to other entrepreneurs? You know, you have this success with with building a business to sixty million dollars in revenue. I mean, it's such a rarity, and then selling a business and starting another business. I would just be really curious to see if there's anything else you'd want to mention to other entrepreneurs. Yeah, don't give up. I know that sounds very basic, but. In, in this day and age, when you see all these people talking about 
fast success on Instagram and you see these stock prices go through the roof and you say, oh my God, like uh, there's gotta be ways to get rich quick. Um, ultimately as an entrepreneur, you're not going to hit that that pot of gold very, let's say, you know, within a year or two. It's typically a much longer game. But um, once you get to a place where you feel a passion for what you're doing and a meaningful purpose, um, and it's not about making money and chasing, you know, uh, material things. At that point, when the money is the byproduct is when your chances for success will go up the most. And so even when it seems like it's tough and there's going to be days where you're going to feel total failure, um, but there's going to be those days where you feel like, you know, you better start uh, getting your your yacht ready. Um, <laughs> you can't give up. You just got to keep going. Unless unless you feel like you've tried every outlet and something's not working or you run out of money. But ultimately, you know, just don't give up. That would be my, my best advice, as basic as it is. Yeah. And basic, but I mean, worth repeating because it is something that people kind of just forget and you, there's always going to come a time, but a lot of times you can push way, way beyond what you think and really try more, more outlets, more options to make something successful. And I mean, interviewing people, hundred plus entrepreneurs on, on this show and everyone has a different story and, uh, perseverance. They just keep going. They just keep trying different things to make their company successful. And yeah, there's times where you're, you have to give up and you have to quit, like you said, running out of money or things you, you can't get over. But um, ultimately, like, yeah, I think that's great advice. And that's something I'll definitely take to heart as well. And Cole, where, where can people go to learn more about you and all you're working on? Yeah. So the business that I'm working on now is uh, Hey Hero. And the uh, best way to hit me up is Cole at HeyHero.com. And uh yeah, it was uh, really wonderful to speak with you and looking forward to connecting with anyone that has any questions for me. Absolutely. Cole, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Great. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.